Last week, protesters surrounded a D.C. police station protesting the shooting of 18-year-old Dion Kay. Police were responding to a call of a man with a gun in the Congress Heights neighborhood a few miles south from here, and they shot him as he fled. Now, in the wake of the police violence that has resulted in the deaths of people like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Michael Brown, and many, many others, far too many and far too often than should really happen in our day and age. But the point is, is that the protesters seem justified in their demands. But after the body cam footage was released the very next day, the response in calling out police violence changed a bit. Instead, the police chief focused on the talking points of, of how the safety nets in place had failed this young man at multiple levels. Family and community support, schooling, having meaningful opportunities, and positive role models. How do we prevent another unnecessary death? What are the solutions? Now, depending on your political or ideological leanings, your, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your, your answers may range from defund the police because policing is inherently racist, tracing back to colonial slavery. Or it could be support the police with more, more resources so that they have more officers on the ground and more guns to keep our communities safe. The divisions in how to move forward seem so far apart. How do we find unity amidst such divergent approaches? But these kinds of divisions don't, aren't just found in policing. We see increased polarization increase uh, in our po politics as well. You'll see a graph here uh, uh, from the Pew Research Foundation that shows the distribution of Democrats and Republicans over the past 20 years. And you can see that shift getting farther apart. Who are the medium Democrat and a median Republican might be closer together in, in 1994 or 1998. And now it's farther apart. Notice the trend? The increased division can creep into our church community as well, with 81% who identified as evangelical Christians that supported the current administration in the last election. We find lines drawn in the sand even within church communities. Sisters and brothers in Christ find it difficult to understand how a professing Christian could support or not support the president and his policies. We question each other's sources of information and news regarding COVID response. Should our schools be opening up to in-class instruction? Should we make our children wear masks? Should we gather again together in person for worship? We question the, what kind of academics and thought leaders regarding how our faith intersects with social issues of racism, of sexuality, of housing and education inequity. The division seems far and wide and covering all aspects of our life. And finding a way forward seems really elusive. And today, as we begin a new series on 1 Corinthians, I want to encourage you. Conflict and divisions are nothing new to God. And they were just as real and live for the early church as they are for, for us now. Throughout the, through the series over the next 11 weeks, I hope that we can journey through the book of 1 Corinthians together and find hope 
that the divisions that we observe in our world do not have to be overwhelming. They do not have to be depressing. We don't have to let these issues drain the life and hope out of us because we'll see that the challenges that the Corinthian church faced have something to say about the challenges that we face in our day and age. So let's talk a little bit about the background, the soil for division that we find in the Corinthian church. The Apostle Paul planted the Corinthian church during his second missionary journey and remained there for about 18 months. It was a brand new church plant. And then he moved on to Ephesus, where he stayed for three years. And it's in Ephesus that he writes back because he hears reports of what's going on in this new church that he started. And that prompts him to write at least four letters that we know of to the Corinthian church. We have copies of three of those letters in what we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians recorded in the Bible. There was at least one letter written before 1st Corinthians, and 2nd Corinthians, most scholars believe, that is made up of two separate letters that were written at different times but have been combined in what we have now as 2nd Corinthians. So we, what we read about in these two letters is part of a longer conversation. You'll see it's kind of like a text message, a screen capture, you know, of like Paul texting the Corinthian church. Hey, Corinthian church, I heard you got some beefs. And they're like, no, what kind of beefs are you talking about? Well, Chloe DM'd me and told me that you guys are having some beefs about sex and worship and money. And you don't know what's going on, but that's what's going on. And so there's something, there's a conversation that's been ongoing. And in these letters, Paul addresses these specific concerns of division and conflict that he hears are happening in this young church that he planted 18 months earlier or in the previous couple of years. Now, Corinth is located on this isthmus. Say that 10 times to wake up your tongue. An isthmus of Greece. And travel and trade had to pass between a Corinth if you were to go from the major city of Athens to the north to Sparta in the south. And there were freshwater springs and fertile, lots of fertile land around the, around Corinth, and that made it a very attractive and cosmopolitan city with people from all different backgrounds, ethnicities, and languages gathered in that city to do trade and to live. But there was also tremendous inequity in Corinth. There was a few rich people, lots of poor people, and nearly probably half of the city was made up of, ens- of enslaved peoples. Crowning the city first in the, physically was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and fertility. So that means in Corinth, sex and pleasure were very, very prominent. Now, the temple was eventually superseded by the temple to the Roman Empire when Julius Caesar rolled through Corinth and raised it and rebuilt a new temple at the top, higher than Aphrodite, in honor of the Roman Empire emperor. So when Paul arrived there, Caesar, as supreme lord, was also very prominent in the minds of the Corinthians. So as Paul arrived to start preaching Christ as the crucified and resurrected Messiah, he faced a community that didn't share most of the Jewish backstory or the moral values of his people. There was diverse spirituality. There was diverse ethnicity and classes. There was no expectation for what Christianity should look like or might be like. So he writes to them, trying to help mostly non-Jews, to think a little bit more Jewishly and understand what it meant to be a Jew or in light of Christ. And he writes both to non-Jews and Jews to help them think in a Jewish way that has been radically modified by Jesus. 
Paul writes to the Corinthian church to encourage them to reveal Jesus in how they lived as a community by overcoming all these different divisions amongst them that we'll unpack over these coming weeks. So that's our task as Jesus followers in 2020. We as a faith community are invited by Jesus to demonstrate to our world, to our surrounding community, that is unfamiliar with who the living God is and what Jesus' kingdom looks like. You see, faith in Christ is not just this personal decision and a personal spirituality for you to find inner strength and calm in. But it's, as we find in the letter to Corinth, our faith informs how we relate to others, how we practice our sexuality, how we use our money and our financial resources, how we deal with conflict, how we experience worship together as a community, and how we treat people from different backgrounds. So that's the soil for this division that's kind of uh, fermenting in the Corinthian church. Very different people with different backgrounds, trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus. So in our internet-fueled era, we can just about find any source online or an online group to confirm a particular position that we are inclined to have on any topic, and those obviously lead to disagreements. I'm sure you've all had someone send you, say, you've got to check out this person. He's, he or she is telling a story that mainstream media is not telling you. The Corinthian church also struggled with this as well. Despite his familiarity with their incredible diversity, Paul opens the letter, urging them towards perfect unity in mind and thought. In verse 10, I appeal to you that all of you agree with one another and what you say, and that there be no divisions amongst you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. There were problems being reported by Chloe, or Chloe's household, Chloe's people. And just a side note here for a moment. Paul mentions a report from Chloe, and it isn't just a woman named Chloe. It's Chloe's people, indicating that Chloe was a leader in the Corinthian church, influential enough to be respected by the whole Corinthian church and to be mentioned by name. From the outset of this letter, Paul affirms how women were vital to the ministry of the early church which we're going to get to later on in this series. The quarrels weren't just minor disagreements of preferences, but they were significant enough that they were willing to part ways over them. They were willing to leave the church because a particular issue had become so important important to them. So what did they appeal to? In verse 12, we're, we're told, well, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And still another says, I follow Christ. Paul names four sources of influence and authority, four voices that members of the Corinthian church are appealing to. And to us, this seems like just a simple list of names, but these names are infused with a deep ethnic and cultural association. You see, ethnic barriers were very significant in the ancient world. In terms of power and influence, you had Rome and Roman citizens at the top. Then you had Greece and those who spoke Greek, and were embodied in Greek culture. They were kind of next because that's the region that Corinth was located in. And then you had Jews at the bottom of the social ladder in Corinth. And then, of course, you have like slaves and, and other people groups. But amongst these lists, this, this list, you got Romans, Greeks, and Jews. 
in that order. And here you had Paul. He was a Roman citizen that he appealed to, but he was also ethnically a Jew. But not only that, he was a tradesperson who worked with his hands crafting tents. He didn't have the pedigree of Apollos. See, he was a Greek, a Greek preacher who came from Alexandria, not Virginia, Alexandria, Egypt, to minister to the church. Apollos at Corinth would be like having an Oxford scholar like C.S. Lewis come to minister at WCF for a year. And because of Apollos' eloquence, because of his educational pedigree, and because he, of his Greek heritage, those who valued quali- those kinds of qualities would have trusted Apollos more than Paul and the others. But after Apollos came, uh, so that Apollos came after Paul left to go to Ephesus, and then Peter, who Paul refers to as Cephas here. Peter came to visit the Corinthian church to lead them and to speak to them and to teach them. He was the founding apostle of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul uses Peter's Jewish name, Cephas, indicating Peter's appeal to the Jews in the Corinthian church as the source of authority. And finally, there were those who said, well, I follow Christ. There's always people in the church who believe themselves to be the true believers, who really hear from God directly. You know, I've I've experienced it as a pastor. You know, people might come up to me and say something like this, like, I'm really praying for you, pastor, that you would truly hear from God about this matter. All of these voices and all of these influences like Paul and Apollos and Peter, they were faithful Jewish leaders who had met Jesus. They each had their cultural lenses and theological priorities that they brought to, uh, they brought and, and appealed to different groups within the Corinthian church. I wonder, if, is that not unlike what we might experience in our own diverse multi-denominational faith community that is WCF? We may come from German or Swiss Mennonite backgrounds or Anglo-Episcopalian, or Latino Catholic, or Midwest Baptist, or West Coast Presbyterian, or Asian American immigrant church backgrounds. And we might have particular theological voices that resonate with us more than others. And this diversity might lead us to vote Democrat or Republican, or to have more conservative or more progressive views on the economy and the role of government, to have more left-leaning or more right-leaning policies on education, on healthcare and policing and immigration, to have more affirming or more traditional views on marriage and sexuality. But none of those positions are meant to be fundamental to our identities as Jesus followers and cause us to part ways over. So what's the way through this? Paul appeals to the church from the very beginning, bidding them, say, would you agree with one another, be perfectly united that there be no division amongst you. The word that Paul uses for agree here is, means fit together. In Greek, it's kat artizo. It's the language of someone familiar with tent making. See, each individual piece of fabric to make the entire tent had to be knit together as different as they might be, and they may, must be knit together perfectly in order for that tent covering to be a waterproof covering. You might say it's, that's impossible. <laughs> What could possibly unite us together in perfect union of mind and of thought? Well, Paul continues in verse 13, saying, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, 
so that no one could say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul invokes these big anchors of the Christian faith, of baptism and of the cross. He asks, who died for us? In whose name were we baptized? Now, we don't catch the nuance in the English language, but there is a shift from the singular to the plural in verse 13. In this list of leaders, we're all saying, well, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of, I'm of uh, Paul, or I'm of Christ. But in verse 13, Paul switches in the question. He goes, who asked, who was crucified for you? That's plural. Who was crucified for y'all? They are first a community united by the cross and by their baptism. And breaking into these ethnic, ethnic ethnicities, uh, ethnic yeah, entities or theological camps is unacceptable. Loyalty to a particular teacher is not an excuse for breaking unity in the church. Their leaders and their influences are not adequate centers of primary loyalty. And no group in the church has the right to claim that they alone uh, see things and that they express their faith in a way that's more loyal to Christ if they all come under the baptism and the cross of Christ. If they are all called by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in that name, they can find their unity. Christ's baptism and Christ, the cross of Christ will also call them back together. The key question here being asked is not who's my leader or which theology I prefer or whose communication style I prefer or who connects with me more, who do I feel connected to more when they teach or whose pedigree or education do I respect more. Those are important things, but they are not fundamental. The key question is not, who is my leader, but who died for us? Who died for you? What brings us into true union is having the same larger goal, to embody this cruciform life of the one who died for us. This is what Paul drills down on in verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 2. And the focal point of that section is verse 23 when when Paul says, Jews demand signs, Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles or to the Greeks. Jews valued demonstrations of miraculous power and strength. Greeks valued intellect and sophisticated argumentation and articulate communication. But in Christ, our identities are not meant are to be grounded in any of those things. Those are important. They can help nurture our trust and our faith. But our entire goal is to preach Christ and to preach Christ crucified, not just with our words, but with our actions and how we live out those things in relationship with one another. As we learned and closed out last week's um, Encounters with Jesus sermon series, we learned in Matthew 20 of Jesus' downward mobility. That Jesus has called us to that same downward mobility for the sake of Christ and Christ's kingdom. You see, Jesus was the one human being with the highest privilege and honor 
And he chose to give of himself to die on the cross for our sin. Jesus, whose voice has been speaking since the beginning of creation, speaking life into creation, gave up his voice with a final cry on the cross. And because of his great love, he overcomes the greatest point of conflict, the greatest division that, is ever, that no human could ever overcome on their own strength, on their own wisdom and merit. Through Jesus' work on the cross, he unites a broken, fallen, and sinful humanity with the almighty, with the holy, living creator, God. And this broken relationship is fraught with conflict, with rebellion and discord, is mended when we respond in faith to the work of Christ on the cross. And this affects how we see ourselves. You see, in Christian baptism, we are saying all the other identities that we might associate ourselves with are under Christ. All the other realms and categories that I use to define my personhood, my gender and my sexuality, my, per, my skin color, my citizenship, my socioeconomic class, my ethnicity, my family makeup, my body type, my bank account, my political affiliations, my theological preferences, everything that we use as a source of identity that the world might categorize us by are meant to pass under the baptismal waters of Christ Jesus. As for one who Christ has died on the cross for, none of those voices, none of those sources of our identity are meant to be ultimate. And this means that no matter who walks into our midst, all are welcome in this journey of experiencing Christ and preaching Christ together as a faith community here at WCF. You might come and think of yourself as this MAGA, hat-wearing, gun rights advocate. You might identify as an undocumented immigrant worker who's building our homes. You might identify as a lobbyist who works downtown for Big Pharma. You might identify as a queer Latinx woman. You might be a, a third-generation Anglican pastor's kid. Or you might be a military defense contractor or a vet who's overcoming PTSD from serving our country. You might be a publishing research professor at Georgetown. Whatever your core identity, whatever you think people see you as, at WCF and in the kingdom of God, none of those are meant to define you as much as your baptism has done to proclaim how Christ has died for you. Now, if you don't know Jesus and you're listening along and you want to be free of living under an identity that you're trying to uphold for yourself, or you're trying to live into because that's what you've been told you are, I want to invite you to experience the freedom and the unity that Christ has to offer to you. It's a unity and a freedom that those who have responded to Christ experience with joy, and there's a lightness that comes to it. What unites us is the fact that we are all inclined to look at other sources for our identity and for our meaning. We're all looking for acceptance and affirmation from groups that will never satisfy us. It's only in Christ that we begin to see our identity and our unity comes from recognizing the brokenness and receiving the brokenness in our lives and receiving this new life in God that Christ has secured for us on the cross. And it's only in Christ that we see how loved and how accepted we are beyond we could ever imagine.
you know, as we live out this relationship with one another, we may find different experiences and different voices and different preferences that influence us, but none of those should bring us to part ways. True unity comes only through the gospel. True unity comes when we are united with the living God in Christ. May it be so here at WCF, not only for the Corinthian church, but for us as well, to the glory of God. Amen.